Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're going to be talking a little about continuous soybeans. But even if you don't raise beans, we got a lot for you today. We'll get to the Ag PhD mailbag later in the show. And even with our talk on continuous soybeans, some of these same concepts absolutely apply to a lot of other crops as well. If you've got any questions for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's happening on your farm today, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or send me a note on Twitter, Brian Hefty or AgPHD Media. All right, so with continuous soybeans, I think, I feel like the reason why we've had a lot of questions about this in the last couple of years has been because of the high costs to raising corn. For example, two years ago, if you looked at the fertilizer price versus today's fertilizer price, or unfortunately even last fall's fertilizer price, um, you're talking two to three X. So you start running up those costs that much. And, and by the way, if you're a non-farmer and you're wondering, well, what are the biggest costs for for farming? Well, if you're raising high corn and high soybean yields, the number one cost is fertilizer in most cases. And sure, cash rent is up there too, but fertilizer is typically number one. And then in on top of that, you've got the other costs that have all gone up now too, whether it's equipment has gone up, any energy costs, fuel, oil, trucking, anything that's related to energy, it's all gone up. So when you have a crop like soybeans that doesn't take as much fertility, it usually doesn't require as much on the ag chem side, it has fewer bushels, so the trucking cost is less. You don't have to dry soybeans out of the field, or at least in most areas they don't. They can just let it naturally dry in the field, no problem. You go harvest it, and you're in pretty good shape there. So my point is, when the costs are a lot less, on many farms, we take a look at, okay, well, what are our total costs? What's our budget? What can we borrow from the bank? And so in some cases here in the last couple of years, we've had guys go, ooh, I just, I don't know if I want to raise as much corn because it costs so much money to put that in the ground. And I get that. So if you're in that situation and you say, you know, can I just raise continuous soybeans? Yes, you absolutely can. I mean, what would you manage different though? That's what we're going to talk about today. Probably the number one thing that I, I think about with crop rotation is just breaking that cycle for disease. So in soybeans, we have certain diseases where it's, whether it's a foliar disease like sclerotinia white mold, or it's something that is going to be in the soil that isn't technically a disease, but a lot of people call it that, soybean cyst nematode. I, I mean, there are a number of other things out there too, where if we just rotate away from soybeans, well, we break that cycle and now we're in good shape. I was just talking to an agronomist on, I think it was Friday, and he goes, Brian, you can't believe it. This farmer that I work with, he had like, and I don't remember what the number was exactly. I think he said 90 bushel beans. It was 85 or 90, like whole field average in a few fields. And I go, whoa, what did he do? And he goes, well, one of the things is some of this was continuous corn for 15 years. 
He went back to beans. There was none of the disease, no nematodes, nothing. And so he, and, and then he had the right amount of rainfall and everything else just worked out right. But I come back to crop rotations, really nice if you're trying to break that disease cycle, also the insect cycle. And let's face it too, with weed control, a lot of the tough roundup resistant weeds that we're fighting today, well, we don't have to fight them so hard in corn. You can get much better control or much easier and less expensive control in corn. So then when you rotate to soybeans, you don't have to fight as many of those weeds. So anyway, there's a lot of, there are a lot of benefits to crop rotation. And I've only listed just a few there. With continuous soybeans, though, and you're, if you're not going to rotate to another crop, you may have to be a little bit more selective on which soybean varieties you're going to plant for disease tolerance. Insects, you got to take a look at that. And you just have to be ready to make certain applications that you may not necessarily have to make if you were in some kind of rotation. So anyway... We'll talk more about continuous soybeans as we go throughout the show today, but right now, let's get to the Ag PhD Mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, this first question comes from John. He says, um, hey, I got a question about phantom yield loss in corn when we go from 25% to 15%. A lot of people talk about that phantom yield loss that there is. Well, anyway... Uh, it does. Uh, my question is, does the same concept apply when the corn has a killing frost and the plant is dead? Okay, so John, I would say, first of all, as for this phantom yield loss, I don't really view it a lot as a phantom yield loss. Here's what I believe is happening out in the field. If you, in fact, do have less yield when you're harvesting at 15% moisture versus 25% moisture, and I'm talking on a net basis, obviously, you're going to have less total bushels because it's dried down. But anyway, on a net basis, a lot of people talk about this as phantom yield loss, but I just look at it as okay, I, I, I've been in cornfields in the fall my whole life. I ran our grain dryers for 20 plus years on the farm too. And it, when I saw those trucks come in and I, and I just watched how I was drying the corn and everything else, I'll put it this way. A lot of stuff, a lot more stuff goes up in the air when the corn comes in dry as opposed to when it comes in wetter. So my belief is that whether it's fractions of the kernel, it's any of the inert materials, um, and then certainly you're going to have more eardrop and kernel loss out in the field when you're trying to harvest drier corn. There's more loss at the head, there's more loss through the combine, everything on average. So I don't think it's phantom yield loss at all. I think that's the reason why you have the yield loss. And no, I don't think it makes any difference in my experience if you get a killing frost that dries that and then things dry down or it just dries down naturally before the killing frost. So anyway, it's a good question and it is something for a lot of people out there they're wondering, okay, is this real or not? Well, there's an easy way to find out. Just harvest some of your corn wet and harvest some of your corn dry and then see on a net bushel basis what you're losing and where. And I, I will say the biggest thing for me on my farm is just more lodging issues and more eardrop when we let the corn get too dry. So we really like harvesting corn at 20% plus personally. So that's our feeling. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. 
The Pentair Hypro Express Flush Valve reduces plugged nozzles and improves cleanout of your spray boom. Simply flush boom sections with a quarter-turn ball valve and leave your tools in the cab. Plus, installation is easy. Simply remove the existing end cap plug and replace with the Hypro Express Flush Valve. Learn more at pentair.com slash hypro. It came on a night like any other. With power unlike anything else on Earth. Using beyond advanced active ingredients like bicyclopyrone, Acuron GT post-emergence corn herbicide is here to annihilate tough weeds. Advanced technology, enhanced control. Talk to your Syngenta retailer about Acuron GT. Always read and follow label instructions. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. <sighs> Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseh.com slash farmall. If we only had 20 words to talk about AgBiome, we would say we are agricultural innovators focused on unlocking the power of the microbial world to deliver unique, effective crop protection solutions. If we only had five words, we'd say learn more at agbiome.com. Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The end zone from FarmShop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit farmshopmfg.com for more. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're talking a little about continuous soybeans. If you've got any questions for us, you can certainly give us a call, 844-44-AG-PHD. First on the show, we get our friend Matt Miles from down in Arkansas. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Brian. How about you? Excellent. So tell us a little bit about any tips you might have for raising continuous soybeans, because I got to be honest, for a lot of us as farmers, we haven't done a whole lot of this in the past. So we're trying to avoid issues out there. What would you suggest? Well, I mean, of course, I know when I, you know, that's a hot topic right now, simply because of, you know, the, the price of fertilizer and, and the inputs, you know, that's on corn. And I, and I remember kind of the struggle between corn and beans I had back when, you know, I don't know, it's been several years ago when corn went below $4. And I was trying to figure out a way to justify growing corn and, and not just loading up on beans because that's one one of my, you know, things I love to do the most is rotate. And, and just keep in mind, you know, there's a 5 to 10 bushel increase in soybean yield behind corn. So, you know, if we're talking seven seven bushels at fifteen dollars, you know that that gets you up north of a hundred dollars an acre more return on the corn the following year. I proved that to myself every year since I started growing corn. So, you know, if when I look for ways to justify growing corn when it's not maybe the best crop to to grow, you know that that's I go back to that is is remember what you'll get the following year in soybeans and with soybean prices where they are today. You know, that might be something needs you need to figure into your budget. You know, yes, you might not make it this year, but, you know, what if fertilizer, if, if fertilizer prices went, you know, down the, the following year, year after that, you got to kind of figure that in. 
you know, we kind of got hit with that this year because we actually double cropped soybeans this year. We planted one crop in February and then came back and planted the second crop July 31st. And one thing I had to do, you know, I got to thinking about that second crop and trying to get it off in a, in a timely manner. Had I stayed with the technology I was with, whatever sh uh, shatter or loss, seed loss I had in the field, that was going to be voluntary beans coming up same time as my second crop. So I had to change technologies so that I was able to kill that voluntary crop because it was a 4-1, I was planting a 3. So, you know, it was going to be a disaster to have a bunch of voluntary 4-1s out there trying to harvest a, a group 3. You know, I'd had pods everywhere. So, you know, that's one thing I think is, you know, just weed control alone, whether it's a voluntary bean or, or weeds or whatever, uh, consider that. And then also, you know, the more times you put a crop on a field, the more chance you have to have you have of disease of whatever particular disease that correlates with that crop. So it breaks the cycle of the disease also. And man, I just think it's good for the ground. Uh, you know, of course we're, we're able to rotate five different crops, you know, so that, that gives us a little advantage on the rotation too. Matt, I want to go back to something you said, five to 10 bushel increase behind corn. I have not necessarily found that to be true on our farm. So I'm wondering, why do you think that is? What's the difference following the corn versus following soybeans? Is it the disease thing or is it something else? Well, I think it's, and, and that that's probably not as big of an issue in your area because the high OEMs, but we are very limited on organic matter. And of course, you know, corn puts that back in the soil. Uh, there's, there's residual nitrogen, you know, left there from the year before. Uh, it's just a synergistic effect. If I'm going to grow a high-yielding plot of soybeans, I can promise you it's going to be behind corn because we just picked that, that yield up year after year. I thought that was just a normal thing. So you're, you're, uh, you've got me knowing that, that it's not. I thought it was probably <laughs> it, well, worldwide, you know, a, that would a happen. Lot. A lot of people will say that, but what I'm always trying to do on our farm and really in any walk of life, anything that I'm doing, it's trying to figure out the why. Why is that happening? Because I got other guys who will say, well, no, I can still raise great continuous soybeans. I know there's one really good farmer we work with a lot in Nebraska. He's like, number one, Brian, I've been able to build my organic matter raising continuous beans. And two, I can raise fantastic yields. So I, I, I just, I, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, well, what, what's that difference? What, what's different about following corn? But you kind of laid it out a little bit for us there. Organic matter, or at least organic material, residual nitrogen, disease. So those are three factors already that definitely can make that five to 10 bushel difference for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's where, you know, that's where I think it, where it happens for us. And understand we're working with subpar 1.0% organic matter. So it's probably a bigger deal for us to have that organic material out there, right. you know, just to give the soil some some air and, and tilth to it. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, we've been talking with Matt Miles. He's with Extreme Ag, and he's down in Arkansas. Hey, Matt, thanks a lot for the time today. This is great stuff. Yes, sir. Thank you, and y'all have a good harvest. You bet. You too. All right, next we're heading out to the state of New York. Got Ralph on with us. He farms out there. Hey, Ralph, how are things going for you today? Pretty good, Brian. No, no complaints at all. Uh, so speaking of complaints, how, how's harvest going? <laughs> any, complaint, any complaints at all with that? <laughs> 
No, no, it's uh, it's been going to be a pretty good year for us. We were really dry. Some of the beans didn't yield very good in the first season we plant early, but now we're in some really good plenished beans, and their yielding is better than we expected. So, good year. So talking about those plenished beans, what do you do for weed control there? Because a lot of people have been concerned about that. Uh, well, with the big problems that were this spring on getting any chemicals, we talked to the viewer we used, and I can't tell you which ones we did, but they had chemicals, and our beans are as clean as any Roundup Ready beans or anything else, the, the, the dicamba beans. They're as good as anything. So whatever they recommended did a great job. So <laughs> people yep. should... Should not be scared. Of it. I think it probably saves us some money. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're good with it. Our our big thing is just putting down three effective modes of action pre. And if you do that in any type of conventional bean, it usually will work out pretty well. So we're talking today, Ralph, about continuous soybeans. You got any tips for us there? Any watchouts? Anything we need to be aware of raising bean beans after beans? Well, if you if you see any diseases at all the year before, don't plant beans after beans there. We up here in New York, we don't have a lot of disease pressure, so it doesn't bother us. We we normally plant 200 or 300 acres a year beans after beans just because heavy clay soil and the the, the second year beans seem to be better than the first year on a lot of this ground. So, uh, but disease pressure, you don't want to you don't want to create problems. So we, we stay away from any field that might have a disease problem that we can see. So like mold, things like that. Yeah. So I don't know if you heard, we were just talking with Matt Miles down in Arkansas. He said they gain five to 10 bushels after corn, but you're saying your second year beans are even better than your first year beans in a lot of cases. Uh, it, do you have any idea why that would be? I don't other than it's just this ground's a heavy clay. We can't get on some of it early. We, we tile as much as we can every summer, but, there's always more tiles we put in. So some is just late ground. And when you plant corn late, it just seems like it doesn't do as well as the beans might. So that's part of our reasoning. Have you gone to earlier planting on the beans now? We do. We start planting beans usually before we start corn. That's we're talking, you know, the first of May, last week of April, something like that. We'll plant whichever whichever fields are ready, we plant. Doesn't matter if it's beans or corn. On your second year beans, what are you doing for fertility? Treat them the same because we're not sure going in the fall what those fields are going to be yet. We oh. sort of wait till spring. Yep. So we treat them the same as if they were going to get corn on the following year. Not, you know, it, it gets mapped. I think right now we're strip tilling, so it gets mapped, put out there, cover crops on it, things like that. But uh, nothing special. We don't our normal beans. You know, first year beans don't get any fertilizers at all. But the two-year beans, they do. They get the same as cornwood. Okay, so that may be the answer why the second-year beans could possibly be better than the first, right? It, it could be, but we, we've we done a lot of tests. I mean, we've been sure. up here in New York for 40-some years now. Yeah. And we do checks almost every year where we put some fertilizer on a few acres of beans, and we can't get any yield response at all. We get a yield response to lime, but we can't get any yield response to fertilizer. Now, maybe... Maybe we should do a plot the other way around, not put some fertilizer on the second year <laughs> and see what kind of yield they get. It'll work in reverse. It's a, so, so. Sounds like an interesting trial for 2023, Ralph. Let us know if you do that. Uh, hey, we got to run, there but thanks go. a lot for calling in. Appreciate it. All right. See you guys later. Thank yep, you. We'll see you. Stay tuned. We'll talk more continuous soybeans right after this. It takes balance to be successful in farming. Because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. 
Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's Zealpro Miticide from Valent USA. With next-level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air, and confidently attack mites where they are. Make Zealpro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. It changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented, season-long, inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our infield research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, joined now by my brother Darren. We're talking continuous soybeans, and uh, then we'll get back to the Ag PhD mailbag here. So, Darren, I, I guess last couple things I had on this continuous soybean topic were it, it was it was interesting talking to Matt Miles down in Arkansas. He said five to ten bushel increase behind corn. Yet Ralph from New York said, "Well, their best beans are actually behind beans." So their second year of soybeans is better than their first year, and he didn't really think it was uh, due to fertility. But, I, I mean, every area is going to be different. 
Ralph had heavy soils. Matt had light soils. I mean, they're from two completely different parts of the United States. And so this is why we always tell people, you got to try stuff yourself on your own farm. Our biggest tips for you, though, are I don't care what year it is, what crop it is. You want to take a look at your soils and do what you can to get those soils in good shape. That may mean you have to add fertilizer. It may not. I don't know what your soils look like. But if you don't have your soils in good shape for soybeans, it's going to be tough to raise high-yielding soybeans. What else do you have for tips, Darren? Well, uh, frequent guest Greg down in Nebraska has been continuous beans for a long time. Very successful, raises really high yields. You definitely can do it. I worry about nematodes. That's a, a kind of a big concern. I'm really excited. The seed industry is starting to see more uh, different sources of nematode resistance. Uh, there's more Peking beans now that are high yielding and, and have good performance. But there's also a BT trait for nematodes that's coming probably, it's hard to guess, but maybe around 2030. And so we're kind of a, that one, if it can make a huge difference, like, BT traits have, that could be a home run. Well, 2030 is a long ways away. So quite frankly, anything they say that's eight years out, I don't ever count that it's going to actually be here. I guess I kind of look at the biggest issues we have when we raise beans after beans. Brown stem rot's a really big thing. Sclerotinia white mold. Iron deficiency chlorosis. Uh, nematodes, like you mentioned, soybean cyst nematode, and then sudden death syndrome too. So there are other issues as well, but a lot of these things come back to the seed variety that you're planting, but then also to what kind of condition your soil is in. If you've got great drainage, your fertility is ample and well-balanced, that's going to minimize a lot of these disease or nematode type issues. So beyond that, there's also gall midge, and we haven't talked about that yet today, but we are seeing more gall midge when it would be continuous beans or when the beans are raised right next to a field that had beans last year. Usually it just is on the end rows when it goes one year to the next like that. But, I mean, there, there are a lot of these little things that could pop up and become major issues. So we just want you to try to get ahead of those things. So I, I guess that's probably the biggest stuff that I would say. We have raised beans on beans many times on our farm in the past. It absolutely can be successful. You just want to manage it a little bit differently than when you're in a rotation. But seed variety is probably the biggest thing I would say. You just have to try to find the right fit variety-wise. Otherwise, a lot of the rest of the stuff is pretty similar to how we would normally raise soybeans. Hey, Brian, one other thing, and I don't know if you mentioned this at all, but the, the herbicide carryover is a big concern, especially in the drought areas. And I know some of the guys are using five and six ounce of miso uh, or Callisto, the same active ingredient as Callisto, in some of these premix products that they're putting out, and even in post-emerge sprays. Also, I know there's growers that are using a full pound of atrazine if you don't have a lot of rain, if you're in high pH soil, or if you're just in a situation where you you just are prone to having some carryover issues, maybe you got a lot of salt out there, maybe you got some other issues in your soil, a pound of atrazine is pretty dangerous to rotate the soybeans. So that's, that's just something to think about, too. What did you have for a herbicide program? I've had a number of growers this year I've advised again, plant the same crop next year, that you planted this year because you didn't get enough rain 
to flush out any herbicides. Yeah, so for corn herbicides specifically, Darren mentioned atrazine there and HPPDs. I'd also throw out stinger. Anything that contains stinger, that can carry over and be a problem. In soybeans, the biggest one we see is Flexstar. If you've got anything that contains Flexstar and you used a really high rate and you're in drought, that may be a case where we would tell you, hey, you might just want to stick with soybeans. Darren, I, I and in, in areas in areas too at the flex star they they advise. I think that might even be we, lo- we lost area. you there. So, we we lost you there, Darren. So you said flex star in areas they advise what? Using it every other year, not using it every single year. So check yeah, your label to see what the rates are for your area. And you know, we wouldn't advise using something like that every single year. You could switch and use something like Cobra or Ultra Blazer to do much the same uh, weed control job, but just without the carryover potential. Yeah, I was going to tell you, Darren, I was talking to an agronomist the other day, and he was complaining up and down about how, oh, we're having lots of resistance issues in corn now. And I go, well, what herbicide program are you running? And the guy was doing double shot of HPPD. And I go, well, of course you're going to. He was using group 15, double shot of HPPD. That's it. I'm like, obviously you're going to have problems with that. That's not going to work. you got to rotate a little bit. Plus the carryover issue. Well, it's no big deal for carryover because going back to corn again. I'm like, okay, but I, I mean, still, you, you, we I, we really encourage everybody, use multiple effective modes of action. You use one, that's not going to cut it anymore. We're seeing way too many resistance issues. All right, Darren, anything else you got on continuous soybeans that you wanted to mention before we wrap this topic up? Nope, I think we covered it fairly well. All right, we're going to jump back to the Ag PhD mailbag. Uh, let's see, this one is from... Saskatchewan, and it's from Derek. He says, Hi guys, I've used and recommended elemental sulfur and found it surface apply. If it's surface applied and given enough time, it will break down and supply the canola, its sulfur requirements. We usually put on about 100 pounds per acre of an 85% sulfur product. It's a fine, it's finely ground, and it's with bentonite to help it break down, and Let's see, he said they also put on some uh, some potassium with that. But anyway, here's his question, Darren. He said there's this product now that's in these big chunks. And he said yeah. people are trying to yeah, sell this and saying, oh, it'll last for five years. Well, he goes, I've been in these fields five years after it's been applied, and the chunks are still there. So how much trust would you put in the effectiveness of these big chunks versus a refined elemental sulfur product like we've been using? And would you just stick to an emo- or would you just stick to an ammonium sulfate product and use that before your high sulfur demanding crops like canola? He- oh, and by the way, he says, love your show almost as much as I love my humic fulvics and humans. Uh, he said that there's some humic acid. Let's see, I think it was humic acid with this, uh, these big chunks of sulfur, but it doesn't matter. I mean, we don't like the big chunks. It's not going to work very well for you. I, I mean, the challenge when you're that far north, you're up in Canada, you don't have heat. And like in the area you're in, in Saskatchewan, you don't have lots of moisture either. And it takes heat and moisture to break this stuff down. So the claim of five years it's going to break down might be 15 years. I don't know. All depends on your heat and moisture. Yeah, I think you're on the right track here with the finely ground stuff, very fine particles, faster reacting. I love that a lot. And there's so much high pH ground in Saskatchewan. I don't know your soils, but I'm going to guess. 
and it's a pretty safe guess, that they're high pH. So elemental sulfur can help acidify things, making a lot of different nutrients out there more available. So, yeah, that definitely can be part of the equation in what you're doing. Okay. Uh, I get a but lot. But not more. the big chunks. Not the big chunks. <laughs> Uh, no, definitely not. Okay, next one is from Amar. He says, hey, if blueberries like a 5.5 pH like you guys have talked about, and I've got that, well, what happens with my base saturation? Shouldn't I add more calcium to get my, or lime or something to get my base saturation calcium up to the level you like? So what's more important, base saturation calcium or the 5.5 pH for blueberries? Amar, I don't know for sure. I, my suggestion is try some where you have a little more calcium there. It might be a difference in taste as well, because when we start talking about crops like blueberries, taste is a really big deal. So we know that blueberries can survive and do fairly well in the 5.5 pH, but I might at least try a little bit where you bump the pH a little, get your calcium right. All right, we're going to get to more of your questions right after this in the Ag PhD mailbag. Stay tuned. Do you have crop failures due to flooding, drought, or another event? You may need to consider a better burndown regimen. Adding just two ounces of New Farm Panther SC to your tank mix not only provides faster results, it provides residual that lasts. You gain flexibility to keep your cropping options open. Ask your dealer for Panther SC and get Panther Power in your tank. Greg Souter, 360 Yield Center. It can seem like fall anhydrous is the cheapest and easiest way to supply nitrogen, but the cost of lost fall applied nitrogen can easily be $15 an acre. Shift that in application to the planter so that you know your nitrogen is at the right place at the right time to feed that growing crop. Then come back at V10 or 12 and apply just what the crop needs to finish strong. It never pays to save pennies and lose dollars of yield potential. Learn more at 360yieldcenter.com. When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's Zealpro Miticide from Valent USA. With next level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air, and confidently attack mites where they are. Make Zealpro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com slash zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Utricia N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Every week for more than two decades, AgPhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more, all designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more.
Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active ingredient flutriophol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Zyway brand fungicide success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty along with my brother Darren live in the Morton studio. Today we've been talking about continuous soybeans, but we are right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag. This one comes from Lynn in Iowa, and we were just talking about elemental sulfur. And so I had both uh, the question from Saskatchewan and this one from Lynn uh, right next to each other, and I kind of mixed the two together. So uh, with the question from Saskatchewan, they weren't putting uh, potassium with their elemental sulfur. Well, Lynn has been. So anyway, here's his question. He said, guys, with high pH soils, we've found in our area, it's these old lakeshore uh, regions where the water sat 100 years ago. Well, then it was put into production years and years ago. pH 20 years ago was 8.6, but then we pattern tiled, and now we've got the pH down to 7.8. So we're gaining, and we're on 60-foot spacings. Now, talking about elemental sulfur, I've been using anhydrous and about 50 pounds, 50 extra pounds of potash, plus I spot spray iron on my beans uh, pot, and he mentions potash is expensive this year. Uh, yes, Lynn, we agree with that. Anyway, is two questions. One, how much elemental sulfur should I use to correct the pH more quickly? And should I use a carrier with it such as potash? Well, you don't need a carrier. The biggest thing is drainage. That's got to be solved first. You said 60 foot spacings. I don't know in your area in north central Iowa if you want to split those a lot of people have and have gone down to 30-foot centers, but I don't know how heavy your soil is, but that's one of the things. The next thing is before I start making a recommendation in elemental sulfur, I'd like to see what the soil tests actually look like. What what really is our problem out there? So let's say that everything was good other than, and let's say that you got a lot of calcium, maybe a fair amount of magnesium, and that's the only reason why your pH is a little on the high side. Would I put out two, three, four hundred pounds per acre? Sure, I'd give that a try. I'd just try that on a few acres and see what you see. And honestly, here's the other thing that I want you to keep in mind, and really for all of our listeners, at the end of the day, I don't give a rip about soil pH. What I care about is yield and making money on the farm. So if I can raise fantastic yield at a 7.8 pH, then who cares? What what what's what's the difference? Now, granted, if I can raise more and and I have the pH down at six six point eight instead of seven point eight, well, then that's awesome, and let's work toward getting toward that that six eight. Over time, your pH usually will neutralize if you have nutrients in balance. So that's probably the biggest thing that I would say. Anyway, Lynn also has a second question here. He says drywall. It's made up of gypsum. Well, can, I can get this for free instead of having it go to the landfill. Could I use drywall out of my fields and it'd be fine? Well, I don't know what else they're putting on the drywall, any chemical or anything like that. So let's just assume that it was just straight gypsum and that's all you got. It's calcium, sulfate, and nothing else. If that's the case or close to it, then 
yeah, that could potentially help. But here again, we'd want to take a look at the soil tests. Do you need the calcium and do you need the sulfate? I don't know. Is it is just that alone going to lower your pH? Again, I don't know because I don't know if those are the two nutrients that are not in balance. So I, I told this story a few times here this fall to some farmers when I was doing some different meetings around the country. We had some ground similar to this too, river bottom ground, that basically this fall uh, was our highest yielding soybean field now, almost 80 bushels per acre. Its pH was high, but the reason why its pH was high was lack of potassium. And if you would have told me, oh, yeah, by just getting your, your base saturation K from 1.5% up to 4%, you're going to drop your soil pH by a half a point, I'd have said, you're nuts. But that's absolutely what we did. We had tiled a few years earlier. pH was coming down but hadn't fully come down, kind of like your case right here. I don't know. Maybe your issue is potassium. I'm not sure. If you want, send us your soil tests, and we can go from there. Darren, any other comments on that? Anything you heard there that uh, that you'd say a little different? Well, I'd always say things just a little bit different, but no, I, I do agree. I mean, you you uh, get nutrients and balance in your soil, and that takes care of pH problems. So that's that's a big deal. And yeah, that the pH is trending down. That's awesome. We don't see those pH changes happen overnight, uh, other than like you mentioned with elemental sulfur, which only really works for that if you have good drainage. So just don't get the cart before the horse. Okay, now here's a good follow-up to all that. This is from somebody criticizing what they call unsustainable agriculture. So we were talking about repairing sodic soils. Well, I'll just read these comments, and then, then you can you can comment after that. But anyway, uh, I don't have a name on this either. But their comment was, um, this is unsustainable agriculture creating problems, these sodic soils you're talking about. And then you try to fix it and create more problems and more unsustainable solutions. Salt in your soil that wasn't there before probably came from ag chemicals or the salt levels rose once people plowed over forests that naturally kept the salt levels low. Because of science, you didn't bother to learn. Drainage problems? Well, maybe don't drag heavy machinery across the land which compacts the soil, which is probably already weak from ag chemicals that killed the soil life, which further weakened aggregation, causing lack of porosity, oxygen pockets in the soil which plants need to live, and thus led to poor water infiltration, uh, creating standing water. You don't need to repair the soil. You need to educate yourself in ecology, soil science, and native ag techniques. Tile drainage doesn't fix anything. It just redirects the effects of the problem downstream to ruin other ecosystems. Um, uh, well, go ahead, Darren. I'll let you comment first, then I'll finish up. Who's this from? I, Didn't I put mean, their name on there, of course. What- Yep. I don't understand what their interest in agriculture is at all, because to me, I was just like, what? What are you even talking about here? That's crazy. Yeah. I I, I mean, there's almost nothing in here that I agree with. And to say tile drainage doesn't fix anything and it redirects the problems downstream. Are you nuts? Uh, Tile drainage helps the problems downstream. So you don't obviously understand what tile drainage is. That's why we talk about it so often. Well, so we're trying to educate people so the they understand. Though, Brian, even even for even for, for farmers that have a salty spot, sometimes they think, oh my goodness, I'm just going to send a whole bunch of salt all at one time into a river or something like that. And that isn't at all how it plays out. If no. you've had a salty spot and you put tile out there, you know it takes years 
for that to, to really correct itself. You've got a lot of other things that you need to do. And how did salts get there? Ag chemicals? Give me a break. <laughs> right. We're using That's... like an ounce per acre on a lot <laughs> right. of these things. Per acre. Right. That's a whole football field. Not a chance. How did salts get there? Oh, my goodness. Right. Yeah, that's so studying ecology sounds like a job for for the person that wrote this. That I don't know. Right. It, it just it's frustrating. Now, do we do some of this to ourselves? Sure. If we use manure and, we, and there's a bunch of salt in there, absolutely. There's some salt that our crop can use. And if there's too much that our crop can't use, yeah, I get it. We're going to have a little bit of excess. It flushes through. It's no big issue. And just do water quality tests coming off of farms. You don't see this problem. Where you see the problem is concentrated releases into our rivers from cities. The Mississippi River system, the number one polluter is the city of Chicago because they don't clean all their waste. If you're going to have a city that's going to have millions and millions of people, I really don't understand how you're not going to have problems. And they clearly do. And to say, well, they can't afford to or they don't have the capacity to clean the water, then the city should quit growing. I mean, come on. You're going to add a million people to a city and you don't have that figured out? I think you got the cart before the horse there. That's what's not sustainable. It's it's too many people living in the same spot. So we got to figure out, okay, if you're going to do that, you have to pay the price. That's just the way it is. And it's not on to farmers to always pay the price for everybody else's stuff. Farmers are doing just fine. Yeah, and I love the comment about the heavy machinery. Do you know how big our equipment is anymore? How? All right, let me rephrase that. How wide our equipment is anymore? Well, we're doing well, way and, less compaction than they did a hundred years ago. Here's the thing that that people don't understand: they just see a big piece of equipment and think, "Oh my goodness, that weighs tons." Yes, it does. But how much is the pounds per square inch that it's putting on the ground? Exactly. That's what the issue is. And what is the pounds per square inch you put with your feet? on the ground. Have you ever calculated it? That's my How point. How many square inches are the soles of your shoe? You're going to put on just as much pressure as those big tractors. When it's too wet, you just stay out of the field. That's what causes the problem, no matter if you're walking or driving a tractor. Yep. When they had to go over it with the horses, I'd almost guarantee you we were creating more compaction then than we are today. And, well, anyway, we can talk about that all day, but we're going to get to some real stuff and some agronomic issues that are important for agriculture coming up right after this in the Ag PhD Mailbag. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients. AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the AgPHD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the AgPHD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the AgPHD Fertilizer Removal App today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. This is Stormy Fields with your weather forecast. Today calls for a high of 68 degrees with sunny skies and not a cloud in sight. 
Planting windows can close fast, so when you need both speed and accuracy, choose John Deere. Our exact Emerge planters and precision ag technologies give you precise seed placement for uniform emergence and the efficiency you need to gain ground. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. Just because your combine is one brand doesn't mean its corn head should be the same, especially when it costs you yield. Drago corn heads are engineered to harvest more. Lowest profile saves ears. Self-adjusting deck plates save kernels. Longer knife rollers reduce trash, and aggressive gathering chains pick up stocks. No other corn head works like a Drago or pays you back like one. See more features and find your Drago dealer at dragotech.com. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. In a world of Veltima fungicide. Hey, let's do it less dramatic. Just say Veltima fungicide. Okay, Veltima fungicide. No, that's literally the same. Veltima fungicide. Still doing it. Veltima fungicide does it. Seriously, we just need you to say Veltima fungicide. Swift, simple, and secure. Didn't I? Veltima fungicide from BASF in cornfields this summer. Always read and follow label directions. Thanks for joining us here on Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, along with my brother Darren. We're broadcasting today from the Morton Studio, and we're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag. Our next question comes from Trey, who farms in central Illinois. He's got some soil tests here, and he says, This field was pattern tiled this past winter. My intentions are to lime it this fall on a variable rate basis. We are full strip till, and we banned all our dry fertilizer in the strip. I heard Brian mention something about adjusting your planting population based on available K. I was wondering if you guys have a formula you use to figure a safe population given your K levels. Mine are quite low, and I don't want my corn to blow over next year. All right, so just looking at his soil tests, and the the nice thing, and I do like this, when I get a field summary, so they have the minimum, the average, and the max. That's very helpful. On potassium, for example, base saturation K, the highest he's got is 2.9%. The lowest is 1.4. And in terms of parts per million, 106 parts per million of K all the way up to 188. So I can absolutely see how you are concerned by this. The soil cation exchange capacity is 12 to 21. So we're talking a medium textured soil for the most part, medium to a little on the heavy side. Organic matter is pretty good, by the way, 4%, which we do find pretty common over in Illinois. But um, yeah, on the lime side, let me first say this. Your field average is 6.3, which is fine. Your max is 6.9. Obviously, it's still fine. The lowest you have is 5.8. So you only need a little bit of lime out there. Just be real careful where you're putting that lime so you're not over-liming. 
But in terms of the potassium thing, since you're banding that K, you're going to get faster response than if you're broadcasting. I'd just say get some extra potassium out there, and then you don't have to worry so much about that planting population. But yes, we do get very concerned if, let's just say, for example, you go, well, I want to plant at 36,000 plants per acre. On that little bit of K, there's no possible chance in the world I'd ever recommend that unless you put on a bunch more potassium because you just flat out do not have enough there to support a high planting population. We don't have a specific formula to that or anything, but I, I mean, it just it, it's a general guideline, general statement. We're going to say, hey, you, you got to get your base saturation K up above 4% or pushing planting population is probably not going to go well. You're just at much greater risk for lodging. Um, couple other things that I noticed on this soil test. So in terms of where to invest your dollars, your phosphorus levels are, are quite low. Uh, 28 parts per million is all. Your sulfur is only at 9 parts per million low. Uh, your zinc, your phosphorus to zinc ratio for the most part is fine, but we're usually talking that 7 to 1, 10 to 1 kind of ratio somewhere in there. So if you bump your phosphorus, you might want to bump your, your zinc just a little bit. And uh, anyway, I could give you a few more comments, but that's that's really the main stuff. Um, Darren, any thoughts on the potassium and what I mentioned about the planting population? Well, this is a real big discussion, especially when seed prices are up this year and potassium is really expensive, as was previously mentioned. Uh, when you get those things going on, you really have to question yourself, what do I need for a planting population to make yield? And that's the big thing. Like you were talking before about, I don't care what my soil pH is. I only care about making yield and being profitable and, and everything else will kind of work out. It's the same thing. All you care about is being profitable, raising corn. So do you really care if it's 36,000 population or 32? Not really. You just care about what's going to put the most money in your pocket in the fall. And if you're going to go with high populations, you have to have a lot of potassium out there to feed every one of those stocks. Or here's what you're going to see. If you do some variable rate studies on your farm, try some at 40,000 and try some at 30,000, just a strip of each, and then see, you've left your fertilizer all the same. Look at stock diameter. Those 40,000 plants will have a thinner stock. That's going to lead to more issues with things falling over late in the year, and you're more susceptible to high winds. So be really cautious about that if you're having issues. If your stock diameter is small, that's one of your problems is you don't have enough potassium per plant. And you can walk out after harvest and just look at stock diameter and see how big they are. And you see some great big thick stalks with a good healthy rind. And then you see some that are really thin. That should tell you something about what's going on in your field. Next question is from Iowa. This is from Marcus. He says, hi, guys, I can get about 300 tons of this manure, and I've sent you a sample. Is it worth it to truck it 10 miles to my field? We have our own spreaders and spread a lot of litter. It would be easy to spread this on my ground, but another option is I wait until my neighbor's crop comes off next to the horse manure pile, and they pay me $9 a ton to spread it. After I truck it and spread it, NP and K values would likely be a wash. What value would you put on the micros and the organic matter? What rate would you spread it? And by the way, iron is quite a bit higher than chicken litter. Okay, so as far as this manure, Darren, I think here's the most important thing that I see on it. For every ton, you got 40 pounds of salt. And we usually talk about 500 pounds total of salt being kind of the limit. So that's one of the things I would look at. So if I was just doing the simple math on that, 12 and a half tons would be my limit. 
But the other factors here for first-year availability, I'll just give you the NPK uh, numbers. It'd be 20, 30, 24. So if you put on 10 tons, for example, that'd be 200 pounds of nitrogen, 300 pounds of phosphorus. Now, this says phosphorus. I don't, well, no, it says parts per million phosphorus. So I'm assuming they're talking phosphate. It must, they must be talking phosphate. So 300 pounds of phosphate and then 24, 240 pounds of K2O potassium. So the, the big thing here, I would say, Marcus, is we don't have your soil tests. So we don't know if you have an excess of any of these things already. And a lot of times that's kind of what we're looking at. Like phosphorus, for example, let's say your ground was already way loaded up on phosphorus and now you're going to throw another 300 pounds on it or you know maybe 350. That might be a little bit concerning. So if we're just looking at the salt, I'd say 12, 12 and a half tons, something like that's probably my limit. And I mean, I'm all in favor of getting manure anytime I can. And yes, there is great value with the micronutrients, even though the levels are pretty small in your test here. So anyway, uh, without having your soil test, though, it's kind of hard for me to say. We just had some ground. So Darren, you just picked up some brand new ground, had very low fertility, put on a high rate of manure. Turned out pretty good, I think, right? It turned out really good. Now, here's the other thing. Did he say he had a truck, one of these sources, quite a ways? Ten miles. You know, the other thing you may do is talk to that manure source and, and see if in the future they'd compost it. Then you get rid of a lot of that moisture out of the, the manure. You'd have a lot less pounds to truck. Uh, that, that could be a good thing, too. Plus, some of that fertility gets complexed where it's not all available right away. So maybe only half of the, the nutrient values available right away. Then you might get by spreading once every two years or something like that and, and still get a lot of fertility. Or you, you just say, okay, I'm going to spread every year just a little bit lower rate. I don't know. There's a lot of different options here, but I think manure is worth so much money this year that you figure out, okay, what's going to best meet my nutrient needs and dollar out for me and run with that because I'm betting if you don't take the manure, somebody else is going to snap it up. All right, next one here is from Lydia, and we had answered her question a while back about magnesium and calcium. She had what she said was sandy soil. It's like seven cation exchange capacity, and let's call it 40% magnesium, 50% calcium just on average here. And anyway, we had just talked about her soils a little bit and maybe getting a little bit more calcium out there and that kind of thing. It's pretty easy in a lighter soil to do that and her ground is in Texas. Well, anyway, they raise grapes, and she said we're very careful about putting potassium out there because I think we had mentioned, you know, you just want to keep your potassium level up, especially in that light ground. Well, she's already at 6% base saturation K. Anyway, her comment is high juice pH is a problem for us. High temperatures and potassium both increase grape juice pH. We can't control the temperature, so we only add potassium if it's absolutely necessary. But every one of her tests that I look at is around that 6% potassium level. And yeah, I got one here that's eight and a half. So we talk all the time about this range of four to 8%. So yes, Lydia, we would agree. There's really no point in going crazy on that. You're, you're in pretty good shape already. Let's address the things that we're truly short on and then kind of go from there and, and just see in the future if the potassium goes down. 
All right, last one here is from Gavin from South Africa, and he just says, Hi, guys, I'm just reaching out to you from the Southern Hemisphere. I just came across your Ag PhD platform, and I was blown away. You got so much information packaged so practically, scientifically, and informatively that I can address so many of my topics in agriculture. Uh, and anyway, he says, uh, I, just the reason for my comments, I now find myself back in the favorite, in my favorite sector, which is ag. I'm on the science side as a technical advisor for plant health down in South Africa. And I'm very hungry to obtain as best information as I can to enhance my abilities in the field. Well done. And I hope to continue learning more from you both. Uh, Gavin, thanks a lot. We appreciate the email and uh, glad you're able to get our content down there in your country. Well, before we go, just want to say thanks to my sister Janelle. She was producing the show and uh, running the controls for us today. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.